somebody um, mentioned detachment to me today. When I, I was in Oxford a few weeks ago, in fact, I think one or two of you were there, um, and somebody asked a question about detachment. The equation, the equating of you know detachment with some kind of Buddhist virtue, and then finding the person who asked the question that they weren't managing very well to be detached, which I was happy about. Not a fan of detachment. They said, "Oh, I'm trying to practice this detachment, but you know, I've got st- such strong attachments to my family, to my children." I said, "Oh, good! Thank goodness for that." Certainly, we form deep, strong, passionate attachments to the people we love, as well as the places we love, the activities we love. It's a beautiful thing. Passion, enthusiasm, uh, kind of it gives a lot of richness of texture to our lives. Why would we want to detach from that? Detachment suggests being aloof from, being apart from, being disconnected from. This isn't a path of detachment. But nevertheless, you may have heard, unfortunately spoken in the same sentence as Buddhism, speaking of detachment as some kind of goal, It's mostly a problem of translation, and I think then it's partly a problem of, you know, that uh, we can end up using spiritual practice as a way of trying to get away from our lives. We notice difficulties, we notice certain painful things, aspects of our lives, painful memories, painful circumstances... And we, want, we don't want that. We want to be apart from it. We want to get away from it. And sometimes we might recognize that tendency in ourselves. And uh, you know, sometimes that tendency turns into a whole practice and teaching. But mostly, as I say, I think it's a problem of translation. And the word the Buddha used was anupadana probably won't help to correct uh, the idea of detachment. But upadana means to cling or to grasp. So anna, anna in Pali is the negating prefix. So it means non-clinging, non-grasping. To abide in our lives, to abide with our experience without fixating, grasping, clinging to anything at all, tall order, without grasping, without clinging to anything at all. But particularly, and if we go to the heart of the matter, we see, what do we really cling to? What do we really grasp after? 
What's the center of it all? What does it all seem to be about? Me. Me, 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 me. That's why we came to retreat, right? For me, me, me. What am I what am I gonna get on retreat? What am I gonna experience? You know, we come here for my my meditation, my lunch, my rest, my room, my walk, my space, my peace and quiet. There's something about uh, all beings in there somewhere. But mostly, it's all about me. And I don't mean that to be pejorative. I think it's just true. That's where we start. We're profoundly interested in me. And the Buddha was profoundly interested in me as well. Not me, me. In a way, that's where uh, contemplative practice and teachings come from. A, a genuine, passionate interest in me. In what is it? What is it to be alive? To be conscious? I've spoken about this in different ways over the last few days. What is it to experience the world, participate in the world with body, heart and mind? These organs of consciousness that I was speaking about. It's that kind of passionate interest in in what seems to be here at the heart of everything, at the centre of everything. Everywhere I look, life all around, and in the middle of it all, me. It's this passionate interest that leads to discovering The nature of mind, the nature of life, resolving the um, the strangeness of our human condition, resolving the unease. We're passionately interested in me, but also that's where all the problems seem to be. In me, my problems, my issues, my story. My development, my neuroses, my insights. There's a lot going on. So most central to the Buddha's understanding, the Buddha's awakening, and the Buddha's teaching, is the truth of non-clinging, that there's nothing that can be clung to. And the practice of non-clinging, that's what we're doing really here, day after day. Unhooking, I've been calling it. De-clinging. Sounds like a cleaning product. Giving back to life what we've hooked onto, started to obsess about, built a whole identity around. We see ourselves building our identity again and again and again around this, around that, around internal factors, building an identity around 
<clears throat> my body, my mind, my feelings, my thoughts. Building a, uh, an identity around external factors, my relationship, my sense of the world, what I'm seeing, what I'm doing. My kind of more abstracted levels of identity, my roles, my ambitions, my projected sense of future my remembered and repeated and reinforced sense of past. So it might seem like a lot to unhook, to decling from all of that. So rather than uh, have all of that, the Buddha pointed out three big ones. Three big places where we cling in such a way that reinforces an unhelpful sense of self. Reinforces a rigid sense of self. Reinforces a kind of an uncomfortable, um, limited sense of me, me, me. So that's what I'd like to explore a bit this evening. What we cling to. As a map, in a way, as a pointer for our practice of non-clinging. Not the practice of doing away with, not the practice of refusing, not a practice of disconnecting or detaching from what's happening. Practice of being fully, juicily, Passionately, attachedly, involvedly participating in life. But freely participating, without clutching, without hanging on, without solidifying and rigidifying our experience in such a way as me, me, me seems so troublesome. One of the places we get into a lot of trouble with clinging is in wanting things. How many things, maybe I wonder if you dare hazard a guess, how many things have you wanted since you got here? (laughs) How many times has the I want thought arisen? Sometimes it comes cloaked slightly differently. I need I must have. I'd really like. I'm in retreat so I can manage without. I can be all equanimous, but I'll have thirds anyway. (laughs) We can see wanting moving in our life many, 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 many times a day. If we have some strange idea of detachment... Or if we have some strange idea, also kind of prevalent sometimes in Buddhist teachings, not the teachings of the Buddha, but the kind of way things get filtered through our own distortions in some ways, then we can have some idea of desirelessness. The end of desire. Desire is the problem. 
Right? We recognise that there's a kind of heat and agitation in wanting things. We might recognise that whatever we want never seems to be enough. I spoke about this the first evening. And as soon as we get something we want, uh, there's something else to want. And so we make, we come up with some ideal where no wanting is happening. I've never met anyone. I've never heard of anyone who never wanted anything. I don't think the Buddha never wanted anything. I know the Buddha didn't never get to some... when wanting never arose. There's places in the text where he says, oh, I'm fed up of teaching. My back's tired. It's late at night. Please, Ananda, he'd say to his poor, long-suffering Ananda, was his cousin and kind of attendant. He'd say, please, Ananda, teach the monks. I want to lie down. I've had enough. It's a rather nice humanizing image of the Buddha. Late at night, aching back, he wants to lie down. It's easy to have a fixed idea of the Buddha. Look, he sits up here, all retreat, completely equanimous, never moving, while we shuffle and uh, suffer. And so we can kind of idealize the Buddha, not so much the historical figure, though that can happen too, but the idea of our aspirations get idealized into something kind of unattainable. Something wherein desire doesn't happen, too, too pure. Too perfect, too peaceful. <coughs> so we need another way of practicing with desire that's not locked into the extreme of either just being a slave to all our desires, just blindly running after everything we want, right? only to get it and want something else, or only to experience the frustration of not getting it, whatever it is. Or trying to go to the other extreme of denying desire, suppressing desire, repressing desire, fooling ourselves about desire. Desire is a juicy force in our life. It's got a lot of energy, creativity, vitality. And it gets us into trouble. So we can look at the little things, you know, that might arise on the retreat, the wanting, I've spoken about wanting lunch, wanting the bell to ring, but there's a lot bigger ones than that. Sex and money, for example. You know, those are the things that really get the, the juices going. In our life. Maybe other things. But generally, the usual categories, sex, money and power, are the places where people get most into trouble, it seems, with desire. And those are very real desires in our life. Right? You know, we're all lay people. And so, maybe not all of us, but the vast majority of us are either engaged in sexuality or wish we were engaged in sexuality. Right. We're, either, we're either engaged in a sexual relationship or we would like to be engaged in a sexual relationship or it's possible that we've kind of resigned ourselves uh, to and given up on sexual relationship. 
Right? Might depend on our life circumstance. Might depend on what's happened to us in our life. Might depend on our age. I don't know. I haven't got to giving up yet. <laughs> but I think sexuality is one of the areas that Buddhism can easily just kind of just kind of swerve around. Uh, sexual desire, sexuality. Go to the monastery. <laughs> Our longing for love, which, so I'm using the term sexuality to include the whole range, right? From lust and the kind of instinctual, kind of rampant kind of lust that can be there, and retreats as good a place for that kind of lust as anywhere else. It's it's even got a code name. Retreat. I, I was talking about it with someone today. It's called the VR. Vipassana romance. <laughs> and somebody just kind of stands out in the crowd and we find ourselves obsessing about them in some way. That they become the focus for desire. It can also happen, on the other hand, the code name VV, Vipassana Vendetta. And somebody stands out and they just annoy the hell out of us. Right? For no fault of their own. But we just don't like the way they leave their slippers outside the meditation hall. No, the way they move, the way they cough, everything they do. You know. And in that way they've just become, in the same way, the focus for our, the opposite. Of, it's still desire in some way, but uh, focus for rejection. So that can happen in the kind of you know just in the in a whirlwind in our fantasy life, whether it's a kind of sensual, romantic fantasy, or whether it's the more kind of vendetta type revenge fantasy, you know, some kind of throttling type fantasy. That can happen in as in the whirlwind of fantasy life, and it plays out in our life. You know how much energy do we put? Into uh, into whether it's you know mental energy in the in the desirums, or whether it's behavioural, whether it's the way we dress, the way we act, the kind of places we go, who we hang out with, you know, how much of our energy is involved in some ways around sexuality, relationship. Might not be uh, you know, so much uh, sexually orientated, but in terms of longing for contact, uh, security, warmth, appreciation, uh, nourishment, human warmth, contact. A lot, right? A lot. So it would. It seems like if we see that we can get into trouble with that if we see that we can get into trouble through all the the you know the huge amount of energy it takes up in our life and the suffering that can go along with it it seems really inadequate to try and squash deny or ignore that if we start to really investigate that longing and it that wanting, that desire, and investigate it means not suppressing it, and yet not blindly following it all the way to the object, 
to what I want, who I want, when I want them, where I want them, how I want them, how I'm going to go about getting them. If we can come back from that and actually investigate the, the, the heat, the passion, the longing, the movement, the desire, that's got to be an important thing for us to learn about. Because that movement is so strong in our lives. The movement of wanting. If we start to investigate our longing for another in that way, we might start to find out it's not so much about the other at all. That might be obvious in the kind of fantasy realms, for example, if we just happen to be obsessing about someone in the retreat. But often in the wider scope of our life, it's not so clear to us. We tend to think, with any kind of wanting, we tend to think that it's about the thing, about the person. And it almost never is. If we start to really feel into that longing for another we can get curious about what is it actually I'm longing for? What is it that seems to be missing that I'm hoping to fill up or get from another? We often find it's some kind of comfort, reassurance, intimacy, rest. And we may experience those lovely qualities in relationship in different ways. But they, like anything we experience, is fleeting moments. If we can't find true solace, true intimacy, true uh, rest, true um, sensual enjoyment in our own being, in any kind of satisfactory or real way, then we just won't be able to find those qualities in any really satisfying or real way anywhere else. So as I say, relationships can be wonderful, beautiful, um, exploratory, creative, delightful. But where there's longing, can we actually investigate the longing itself? Feel it. What am I really, we might ask ourselves as a koan, as a reflection, as a contemplation. What am I really longing for? What am I really longing for? That's a great question to ask ourselves at any time. In any situation. Where there's the movement of wanting. What am I really longing for? I remember a, a, a friend who was on retreat here at Guy House. Somebody who um, has worked here a lot. And therefore kind of knows their way around. Knows how to get into the kitchen after hours and make hot chocolate. For example. I won't say who this teacher or person was. 
but the so uh, they came downstairs once in the evening to make hot drink, a late night hot drink. A jar of biscuits was there, so I had hot drink, biscuit, nice. Second biscuit, nice. They're just going for the third biscuit, and they heard a voice, and the voice said, "Whatever you feed, that's what'll grow." Didn't take a third biscuit. <laughs> Whatever you feed, that's what'll grow. So, what are we feeding with the movement of desire? What are we really supporting? What is it that we want to grow? What do we want, in other words, to nourish, to feed within us? It's another way of asking, what do I really want? It's so easy, it's so easy for us, for longing to just get channeled into biscuits and hot chocolate in that case. Not that there's anything wrong with biscuits and hot chocolate. But it's so easy for our longing to get channeled into this and that and him and her and here and there and all manner of a million things that are kind of dangled in front of us every day, saying, want this, want this, want this. And in the midst of our wanting, whether it be a small wanting or especially these big, strong, powerful wantings, so as we feel the energy of it, the power of it, the <clears throat> of it, what am I really longing for? Because if we can let go of the object in that moment and actually follow the longing, follow the energy, follow the truth of that experience as it moves in us, that longing itself can take us all the way to what it is we're longing for. That intimacy, that rest, that ease, that relief. You know that relief, the momentary relief when you get what you want. I want, I want, I want, full of agitation, get what you want. Oh. And then of course it starts up again. But that momentary feeling of relief isn't because we've got the biscuit, the this, the that. It's because the 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 energy of wanting has subsided for a moment in the getting. That solace, that relief at the end of longing is already available. What we're really longing for is already here. So don't don't detach. Don't deny the juiciness of desire. But see if you can get right inside it and let yourself have it. Let it move. Let it open up and see where can it lead. I was going to talk about desire for money as well, but I've said so much about the other one, and maybe that's enough for clinging to desire. 
But money is similar in some ways, in as much as when we really in, in, in when we really investigate it, whether we have the tendency to get obsessive about wanting with money, right? Which might be about you know uh, fear about whether we've got enough, wanting to have more, or whether we have more the opposite of feeling some kind of aversion to money, some kind of oh, it's so complicated and difficult money. Often that's more the case in, in kind of spiritual circles. There's a sense of money being uh, impure or uh, it's all just tied up with a kind of greed and capitalism and stuff and we kind of want to ignore the fact of money. That's definitely, uh, I think, around a lot, again, in, often in Buddhist kind of circles. But again, when we start investigating our relationship to money around the wanting, the draw towards, or around the resistance and the pushing against, we start to find out that it's not really about money, that it's about security, fear, confidence, self-worth, all manner of other things. Now, money is a great thing to practice with because whether we consider ourselves spiritual or not, doesn't make any difference. We're all dealing with money most days of our lives. And we, if we look carefully, we might find, or maybe we know very well, that we have kind of conflicted uh, relationship with money. We have ambiguous views around money. And we kind of feel uncomfortable. So it's another place. It's a great place to investigate our relationship with wanting. Another place. We cling to self. So in all that movement of wanting, what we're doing all the time is is reinforcing the self, the sense of the one who wants. As soon as you make an object strong, what I want... The subject of the wanting is equally as strong. The very movement of wanting is a feeling separate from, right? I want that. I want that puts me here, puts that there, and then all the drama happens in the gap. So the desire is a movement of clinging to a sense of self that keeps us feeling separate. Investigating the longing means allowing that longing to open up in such a way that it dissolves the gap. What we're really longing for, like I say, is already here. The gap is illusory. The gap appears when, with the object, with the that, with the thing. So, another place we, we do that is with ideas. What the Buddha called this rather lovely word, the thicket of views and opinions. This lovely word, thicket, means a, you know, thicket, a dense tangle, a brambly, scratchy tangle. A thicket of views. We, we define ourselves, means we cling to a, a sense of self, 
through our views. Political views, religious views, moral views, like a whole bunch of external views, but much closer to home, all the views about ourselves through which we maintain a sense of identity. I'm this kind of person. I'm that kind of person. And we believe those things to be true. That's quite astonishing. Because it doesn't really stand up to much scrutiny. No, I'm this kind of person. But actually, you know, if I look at myself, I'm I'm different here with you than I am at home with my kids. And I'm different again when I go and see the, the bank manager. And I'm different again when I'm with my own parents. And I'm different again when it's just me and my wife. And I'm different again when I'm on my own. So am I some kind of completely uh, you know, schizoid, multi-personality maniac? Or is that just the way we are? That we're not really this kind of person. We're at, at least these kinds of, of people. That we manifest really differently, moment by moment. Somebody might have a sense of us as being uh, having this and this and this quality or characteristic, and somebody else might have a very different sense of us. But what's interesting is that even though we can, we kind of know that in some way, we continue in a, on a much more visceral level to define ourselves again and again by the stories we tell ourselves about the kind of person we are. This kind of practice is a remedy for that in many ways. Just like we've been practicing with bodily awareness, you know. It can be revelatory to actually meet bodily life directly. When for our whole life, the way we've related to our body is just through our ideas of it sometimes. Our sense of its shape and size and likability or, or lack of likability. We might relate mostly in terms of shape and size. We might, we might relate in terms of gender. We might identify strongly in terms of colour. Uh, we might identify, if we're English, a lot in terms of class. The whole sense of the ways we construct and then we know about who's in and who's out, who's here and who's there. We construct a whole sense of us and them, my kind of people. Who are my kind of people? And then the rest of humanity, they're not my kind of people. We define ourselves through our likes and dislikes. The music we like or the politics we like or whatever. And we're doing this again and again. And it has a certain kind of social usefulness, but... We believe it. We believe it to be true. And if we don't, if we don't investigate it, if we don't see that happening, then that's the world we live in. We live in a world of being uh, with and against. If we're interested in a freer way of experiencing life, then we really want to be awake to that process. 
It's natural that it happens. It's completely natural that it happens. But we can wake up in the middle of it. We can wake up. I can wake up as I take myself to be this kind of person, that kind of person. And just see that it's, it's a construction. It's an idea. It's a way I'm defining the sense of Martin in the moment. And it's, it's empty. It's liquid. It's, it's, it's untrue. The, the moment that I've constructed it. I once did an exercise with, uh, with some friends where we would repeat again and again, my name is Martin. Martin is someone who... Da, 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 da. And then just see whatever comes. Martin's I mean, kind of shocking to notice what, what came out. And without censoring, without, uh, without trying to find what we really believe about ourselves, just letting it come out. Martin is someone who... And find all kind of unconscious ways in which we define ourselves. And we have the option in really noticing the alive participation in life, the ever-changing participation in life, the ever-moving uh, body, heart, mind, world interplay to find a way of meeting life in which those, those definitions, those ideas, those views are just a kind of trivial and just kind of murmurs form, seen, dissolve and in the dissolution in the unclinging to them there's an expansiveness a freedom to exist beyond our ideas of ourselves beyond the limited view the small view And suddenly the world is much closer. The third way, which kind of builds on that, that the Buddha spoke about, which is in some ways the the whole summation of his understanding and teaching, is that we cling to existence and non-existence. So it's a kind of a subtle, I'll try to explain clearly. That we tend to, the way our minds work is in terms of thinking things are or they aren't. They exist or they don't exist. So what, what other option is there? The Buddha says, big problem is the human mind tends to think of things as either existing or non-existing. So he's pointing to another way. What could that be? They either exist or they don't exist. What could be another way? It's kind of exciting. This is kind of thrilling. That the Buddha is introducing to us a whole different possibility that maybe until right now we've never considered the possibility of things. Either exist, no, no, no. Or they don't exist, no, no, no. Then what? Are you excited? 
by that. <laughs> you know, if we lived in those two categories, things exist or they don't exist, this is like, you know, a whole new world of possibility. In a way, I could stop there, you know, with the cliffhanger of that. Because it, it kind of gets tricky to talk about. In a way, what I'm most interested in is in stimulating your interest in another way of perceiving, rather than trying to give something as dull as, a, as an answer. You know, and of course, that applies to all phenomena. We can only conceive in terms of things exist or don't exist, but it most particularly, most significantly applies to how we see ourselves. What is me and what isn't me? Where I am, where I stop. We think of ourselves as discrete, right? We say, I came to the retreat, and I did the retreat, and I'm going to leave the retreat. And in that whole scenario, we conceive of ourselves as discrete, separate, different from the retreat. But there, you know, there is no retreat without our participation in it. How can you separate yourself from the retreat? Do you follow what I mean? We think, oh, I did the retreat, as if the retreat exists as a thing, and I did it, I entered into it, it's a thing called the retreat, and it's peopled by all these people, it can't be relevant to me, because they're just the retreat, and I came in, and I did it, and I go away. And I remain discreet in that whole process, I remain uh, just kind of a little entity here, you know, neat, ordered, well understood, stops here. Right. Sometimes kind of gets out about that far and sort of lets people in a bit and then it's a bit too much and shut them out again. And off I go. But like all of these things, that view doesn't stand up to some scrutiny. You are the retreat. We are the retreat. One of my teachers used to say, you are the path. The spiritual path. You know, we think of you know the, the spiritual path. I'm practicing a spiritual path, and I, my, me, I remain separate from it all. I can talk about my development and my openings and my insights, but there's still this sense of you know me going along, me going along. So, however much I talk about developing and opening, there's some way in which I tend to keep the sense of myself as this, existent, like this, solid, discrete. So it's quite disconcerting to hear, you are the path. You are the retreat. The Vietnamese teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, coined a lovely word to, um, to respond to this dilemma of existence or non-existence, which he called interbeing. 
He says, we inter-are with each other. Quite beautiful, we inter-are. How about that as a practice of non-clinging? To interbe with one another. To allow for, to allow into our own consciousness, into our own heart, into our own sense of life, the possibility to interbe. We get lots of clues of that. You know, sometimes when we see another in distress and we feel the pain in our own heart, if we really notice that, that's something astonishing. That shakes up our ideas of being a discreet thing. Me, I went to the retreat. I saw some others. I went away. Huh? We inter-are with Everything. Certainly we inter-are with, with everyone we've ever engaged with. And all, all that we think and feel and remember is completely, inseparably intertwined with all the people that have influenced us. And in some ways, some very obvious ways, people here will have influenced you. In some more subtle ways... Everyone will have influenced you, just as you're looking out through your eyes now. You know, everyone's, oh my God, they're all interaring with me. <laughs> they're, all in, they're all influencing what I'm seeing. My goodness, how intimate we all are. Mind can't make sense of, a, of, a, of another way other than is and isn't, exists and doesn't exist, here and there, me and you, this and that, before and after, one side or another. So give up trying to figure it out and let life in <laughs> to uncling, to let go of the familiar, being entrenched for decades. So it's a, it's a big deal to let go of, entrenched for decades, that view, that way of seeing. And yet, if we just put it aside and let life in, we find everything interpenetrates. We've been noticing in our practice that the way common sense has it round is completely the wrong way round. Common sense tells us that awareness sort of is in here somewhere and everything else is external to it. That the sense of me and who I am is all locked up in here and then outside that is my mind and my brain and then my body and then the world all stretching out. And so that awareness is the most interior thing and everything is external to it. But as we investigate this extraordinary capacity this, this fact of wakefulness, this fact that there's something here that's animated and awake, we find that almost completely the opposite is true, that everything's happening within awareness. 
thinking's happening in awareness. Sensations are happening in awareness. Seeing is happening in awareness. All of you are right here inside my awareness. That's very close. That's very intimate. We interaring in a way that we can't make sense of. We can't make sense of. Making sense goes back to is and isn't here and there. But look. Listen. Sense. Where is life not? What's missing? What's outside of this? What is there to be wanted? Sought for? What do we need to construct a view and an opinion around? Everything's included. All of this, would we say it is or it isn't? Would we, would we make it that clumsy or reduced? Let our minds fail and falter and splutter. Because common sense can't go there. Let our heart crack wide open and include it all. This is where we can rest. This is the, fr- the fruits of our longing. And this is coming home to ourselves, to life. This is the Buddha's invitation. The invitation of awakening. Open. Free. May we abide with the whole of our being in a place that neither exists nor doesn't exist. Liberated from our views and opinions. Fulfilled in our heart's desire. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.